Welcome to the Top 5 Podcast with your hosts, Rail Bricker and Lindsay Adams. Hello and welcome. This is Lindsay Adams again. And today our special guest is Craig Shim. Craig is comes all the way from Bris Vegas, that's Brisbane, Australia. And uh, Craig and I are in the local Hills and District Chamber of Commerce together. And uh, we, we've been really doing some interesting stuff together recently. And I just so wanted to get you on the podcast. Welcome, Craig. Thank you so much. Now, let me tell you a bit about Craig. He, he's a qualified intercultural business consultant. He owns two companies dedicated to helping people hone their cross-cultural business and relational skills. And, and this is really topical in the world we live in today. Uh, he's a director of Alpha Crane, intercultural specialist, and the co-founder of Project Global Citizen. So really exciting stuff. And today we're going to talk about the top five cross-cultural tips for doing business in Asia. So, Craig, hit me. What's tip number one? Well, Lindsay, uh, before I go into the tips, I thought I'd share a scenario that might just provide a little bit more context. Ooh. Uh, so I'll, I'll start with that. So what I want you to do is to imagine you're expanding into Asia and you've received interest from a potential customer in Hong Kong. After initial discussions, you start to notice that they appear less interested in pursuing the deal and you wonder where things went wrong. So that's the uh, that's the scenario, and I'll go straight into tip one. So the first tip is really to understand the cultural differences in the Asian business mindset. Now, there is a misconception that the key to successfully pitching and negotiating with Asian businesses is understanding local customer, uh, customs, such as formal greetings, and another one that you hear a lot is mastering local protocols, like knowing how to present your business card with two hands. So while these things, look, they are helpful, I know from firsthand experience that's generally not going to make or break a deal. So instead, you really need to wrap your head around understanding the Asian business, business mindset. So... In other words, what are their culturally driven values, their motivators, and their priorities? Because if you're a foreigner, you can pretty sure you can you can pretty much be sure that there are significant cultural differences compared with your own normal business mindset. Now, I always say that if you choose to ignore these differences, there's a significant risk that things just won't pan out the way that you want, no matter how well versed you are in those local protocols. Look, so although there are plenty of cultural differences between the business mindset of Asians and non-Asians, generally speaking, there are five big questions you should ask yourself when you're preparing to pitch and negotiate with your Asian counterparts. So I'll okay. just run through these five questions if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <clears throat> okay, so the first question to ask is, is there a significant difference in how we build trust? So, for example, are you more task-focused or more relationship-focused? And, of course, Asians are generally relationship-focused. And if you don't take that into account, you're unlikely to gain their trust. The second question to ask, is there a significant difference in how we communicate? For example, are you more direct in your communication style or is your communication style more diplomatic? And uh, 
well, for you, Lindsay, you've spent a lot of time living or working, at least in, in Asia. You'll probably recognize that Asians tend to use a very diplomatic style of communication. So that should really influence the way that you pitch. So the third question is, is there a significant difference in how we prioritize our time? So, for example, do you prefer a, a sequential step-by-step -step approach to, to achieving tasks or are you truly comfortable with multitasking? And Asians tend to be multitaskers and that's going to play out in the way business is conducted. So the fourth question, is there a significant difference in how we form a sense of identity? For example, are you more individualistic? or are you more group-oriented? And Asians are more often than not group-oriented. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're pitching because their decision-making processes are rarely going to be made by just one person, and they are unlikely to be transparent if you're not considered part of their group. So they're, look, they're really the top five, uh, top four, I should say, questions. Um, maybe I'll squeeze in the fifth one. This last question, is there a significant difference in how we respond to hierarchy? And I thought I'd mention this because it's, it's relevant for Australians. For example, is your belief system based around everyone being equal, which is pretty much what it is here in Australia? Or does your belief system accept that status and hierarchy are very important in the way we relate to each other? So in Asian cultures, they tend to be more status-oriented. So knowing this will influence who you should be pitching to and who's really calling the shots during your negotiations. So look, there are the five questions all relating to that top, that number one tip, which is about understanding the Asian mindset. So, so Craig, I mean, that, that leads us on to, on, on to your second tip, but I have a, a clarity question, I guess. In the global world and there's a lot of more um, Asian film that's become mainstream in Western society. Um, and, and, and the fact that we do live in, in Google time and internet time where everything's accessible, you know, are those differences shrinking? I mean, you, you've, you've highlighted very five quite stark questions, but, but are those differences actually shrinking um, over time? Look, cultural attitudes do shift over time, but not as much as you might think. And one of the one of the things that I often hear rail is that, uh, for example, when um, when Westerners go to somewhere like Singapore or somewhere like Shanghai, um, they might go there and they and they see that everyone looks, dresses the same, or you know, very in a similar way to uh, to the West, and you can jump to the assumption that, oh, you know, they're more, um, you know, these people here, uh, it's no, it's um, kind of no problem working with them because they're all the same. Um, you know, they're the same as us um, and they are westernized. Now, I, I would disagree with that statement that people are westernized. Um, I would say that people are more globalized. So, yes, um, I, I think you're spot on in terms of people. A lot more people now are more aware of different ways of doing things as opposed to, let's say, a monoculture where you assume that your way is the only way. Um, and things do change over time, but probably not as much as what you think. Okay. So, so of your five questions that you asked, one of those or the third one 
um, about time orientation. How does that relate to your second of your top five cross-cultural tips for doing business in Asia? Thanks, Rael. Yeah, so time orientation is a big one for really dealing with any cultures, but particularly in Asia. So my tip number two relates to this. And the tip number two is avoid setting unrealistic time frames. So let me share with you, when I was based in China and I attended a delegation to Myanmar or Burma, as some, some people might know it, um, yeah, I attended this delegation to negotiate a, a partnership between the, the companies from these two countries. But it wasn't until around day six that we were able to commence discussions in what Westerners would regard as the first real business meeting. Now, this is typical of the negotiation procedure in many parts of Asia, which can be an unpleasant surprise for non-Asian delegations uh, who are expecting to stitch up a deal in a two- or three-day mission. Now, the reason for this is there are fundamental differences in the way cultures perceive the concept of negotiating, and that relates to what you mentioned, Rail, time. So the first difference is the extent to which Asians value relationships over contracts. So those first five days for me in Myanmar, um, those, that negotiation were, was really all about the Myanmar party establishing whether they could be confident in maintaining a close business relationship with us, their foreign partners, over the next 20 years. So although relationships are important from a Western perspective in Australia, obviously you know, the, the golden rule is to form a relationship with someone before you try to uh, pitch to them, the temptation is in Western cultures to quickly move from relationship building to securing and then closing the deal. However, from an Asian perspective, the emphasis is on establishing a quality and a long-term relationship first. And I call this the 20-year rule. So here's what I mean. If I don't get the impression from you that we will continue having a solid relationship in 20 years' time, I'm less likely to invest in the relationship right now. Now, this emphasis on relationship building is a prerequisite for building trust and negotiating a fair deal in Asia. And that's not, not the same um, in a lot of other countries, or certainly not to the same degree. So I guess what, I, what I'm trying to, to, to warn here in a way is that if you appear too preoccupied with just the short-term contract at hand, this could cause alarm for your Asian partner who in turn may decide to choose um, a competitor whose values align more closely with theirs. So that's, uh, that's really the first difference. Um, do you want me to share another one or shall we move on? Okay. I, I, um, I just wanted to chime in, Craig, and, and say in my experience that's very, uh, very common, very much my experience. They really do want to connect with you and find out about you. The other thing I've learned is that, um, uh, you know, you're talking about values. Do we share the same values? Um, you know, I'm very quick to share uh, about my family, that I'm married, that I have children, that I have grandchildren. And that's a really an, another um, important piece that I've found in terms of, you know, cementing that relationship is that you're, you have similar values. And in Asia, of course, family is so important. Um, and so, yeah, I, I find that really interesting. So let, let's move on in, in the interest of uh, managing our time. Let's move on to tip number three. What have you got for us? 
So tip number three, Lindsay, is about preempting the need for flexibility. Uh, there's a lot more flexibility required in Asia than in other countries. So let me quickly share another story about my experience um, with that Chinese-owned company that I'd mentioned earlier. In a nutshell, I was appointed, I was appointed their country manager for Myanmar. And my primary role was to project manage a major contract on behalf of the Chinese company servicing the Myanmar clients. Now, I should explain, because this is, uh, this is not video, this is audio. I should explain that I am half Chinese, but to most people, I look and sound like an Anglo-Australian. Now, this is significant to my story because the Myanmar client viewed me as a white foreigner. So to, so to operate on a level playing field, they appointed their own foreigner to be my counterpart and my sparring partner for all the negotiations. <laughs> So, look, on the surface, all the major negotiations of the project were handled by myself and the client's American project manager. But in true Asian fashion, there was a lot more happening behind the scenes. On multiple occasions, my American counterpart and I would be negotiating the specifics of a, of a contractual obligation that my company had to our client. But behind the scenes... Our respective bosses had already settled on some major project variations <laughs> that rendered much of the contract mute or outdated. And in most instances, the, those behind the scenes agreements happened at the most senior levels, and it was often left to us to then adjust the contract accordingly. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, Lindsay, this infuriated my American counterpart, who was used to running projects in a step-by-step -step fa fashion and obviously to the letter of the contract. So what was really going on in this case? So in task-focused cultures like Australia, USA and Germany, agreements are put into contracts and renegotiating the terms of the contract is gener generally frowned upon no matter the relationship. However, it's important to remember that in relationship-focused cultures, including Asian cultures, there's a lot more flexibility in how and when a series of project tasks can be achieved once a quality relationship is, is established. Okay. So, so I mean, I, I love that idea of the flexibility and, and the fact that that a contract is not a contract sometimes. Um, yes. That, yeah, they, yeah. that there's a contract with the underlying thought um, that, that it, it can be varied. Um, so that leads us on to uh, tip number four. Hit us with that one. All right, Rahel. So tip number four is to be aware of communication gaps and loss of face. So as I've mentioned in the other tips, it's really important to remember that Asian cultures are heavily relationship-focused. Now, I should point out that's not unique to Asia. There are plenty of cultures that play a high emphasis on, on kind of task versus relationship. Other cultures that are also relationship-focused include your Latin-speaking countries, Africa, the Middle East, Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as Indigenous and First Nations peoples. However, the major difference with Asian cultures is the higher level of importance that they play on or that they place on maintaining group harmony. In other words, saving face and giving face. Now, because maintaining group harmony is so important, 
a typical Asian communica- communication style tends to be more indirect and more diplomatic. So a yes in Asia may not mean the same thing as a yes in other cultures. In Asia, reading between the lines is an effective and normal way of communicating, and it avoids the need to openly disagree or to say no. So just because your Asian counterpart responds with a yes in answer to your question about, let's say, whether they understand your pitch or your perspective, they could be just trying to save face or to give face. Yeah. So yes, no questions are generally not the best way of communicating when you're pitching and negotiating with Asians. Craig, you, you're really hitting some nerves here. I've had so many experiences of where I've had a yes and I thought, yeah, you beauty, and then that yes isn't really a yes at all. Uh, and, in fact, I, I engaged with a very senior official in Malaysia and he you know, put me with his staff to to fabricate a program, and it, it never it never came to pass. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I went round and round and round the garden path. It can be frustrating, right? Oh yeah. Okay, you are, you talk about communication gaps. What about humour? I mean, in the West, we use humour a lot, and and there is a level of commonality. Uh, how does that humour in communication translate into Asia? I love that question, Rail, because, yes, all, all cultures have some form of humour, but, um, but it can be humour obviously can, can, you know, kind of backfire when you're, when you're communicating across cultures. Um, having said that, Australians, for example, use humour a lot. Now, the big difference between, um, let's say, humour, the use of humour in Australia and the use of humour in um, in cultures like Asian cultures is that is the context. So in Australia, we tend to treat everyone equally and we, we tend to, that, that kind of translates into treating everyone as a friend. Now, you can say all kinds of jokes to a friend, right? But in Asian cultures where, where there's a much higher emphasis on status or hierarchy, um, you know, that those jokes that you may share with a friend would totally be inappropriate to share with uh, someone of status. And in a business context, I've seen this plenty of times living in, in Asia where you've got, a uh, let's say, for example, an Australian who tries to build rapport with their customer or their partner, their Asian partner, and they start cracking jokes. And, and from a status hierarchy perspective, it is not the right context to be doing that, and it has backfired. Okay, so, Craig, um, we're we're moving to the end of our tips here. Tip number five, what have you got? This is a quick one, Lindsay, but uh, it is all about having cultural curiosity, and surprisingly, it is sometimes time to suspend your common sense. So, look, as you can tell, I'm really not a big fan of sharing extensive lists of do's and don'ts when it comes to to doing business internationally. Um, I think there are better ways to build your cultural intelligence. And, look, my reasons for for not promoting those those lists of do's and don'ts that you can, for example, get from Google, um, one of the reasons is that unless you're familiar with that particular culture, you're probably going to interpret those, those lists of do's and don'ts from your own personal cultural perspective, which kind of defeats the purpose of figuring out the other person's 
underlying values, their motivators and their priorities. Also, it's times like these when you really need to suspend your common sense because what's common practice for you is not common across all cultures. You know, every culture has its own unwritten cultural rules and these just aren't as simplistic as a list of do's and don'ts. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can I, but then, so is it is it okay yep. in, in an Asian environment or an Asian setting to say, can you explain or can you fill me in on, you know, the, the this particular aspect of your culture? Yeah, what you've used, Rail, is a probing question, and probing questions do work across um, across multiple cultures. I think the the key um, difference between whether that's going to work or whether that's you know going to fail is if you deliver that question with cultural curiosity. If you show that you are genuinely interested in what their perspective is, what their view is, um, and and um, you know, you ask it in a in a way that's not dismissive, then yeah, there's a very high chance they're actually going to share with you some um, you know some their perspective that you may not have realized. And it's also it also opens the door to continue asking more probing questions. Well, I'll use a particular so you're going out for a drink or dinner, and you know, you want to know what is the protocol with going to the bar and, you know, buying drinks, okay? And so the Australian way would be, you know, everyone's trying to be bigger and bolder than everyone else and put their credit card on the bar, you know, you know, to ask the question of, you know, what is this, what is the norm here? How do we buy a few rounds of drinks? Like, how does it all work? You know, asking it in that way kind of says, well, I'm happy to do it if that's what your culture permits. Would that be the right way of doing it? Absolutely. Look, Rail, that is that is a form of the best kind of questions that you can ask when you're trying to understand someone else's culture is that, you know, you do ask exactly what, you, what you've said. You do ask, um, you know, how do things work in your culture? Clearly, I'm, I'm, I have a different cultural background. So excuse me if, I, if I'm curious, but I really do want to find out from you how, how things work here. Yeah, I think um, asking questions like that, um, I've, I've had wonderful conversations and, and I think it deepens the relationship again because they're, they're grateful that you're interested and, and they want to converse more. And, of course, then it comes the other way at you. Um, so in Australia, how does it work or what happens there? So I think it's a, a, you know, a great way to open up the conversation, deepen the relationship. Craig, um, one of my jobs on this podcast is to keep an eye on time. We're we're almost out of time, but I do want to mention that you have a cross-cultural relatability quiz. Talk to us about that for a sec. I'm I'm sure our listeners would be interested in this. Yes, sure. Um, So it is a free uh, quiz and uh, and it really does talk about the thing, goes into more detail about uh, the things that we've discussed today. So if you go to my website, which is alphacrane.com.au and you look for the cross-cultural relatability quiz, this is where you can score your ability to relate to people from different cultural backgrounds. It's just got five questions and you get instant results. But um, I think that, that you really find it very interesting, very insightful. Okay, brilliant. So you've given us your website. So if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you and explore more, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Want to have a conversation with you yourself? Uh, what's, how would they do that? 
Look, LinkedIn is always good. Craig Shim is uh, is uh, how you would find me on LinkedIn. And uh, if you wanted to get kind of more details without um, um, you know without having to meet me face to face, you know, there's there's plenty of resources on my website. Um, so, for example, I've got uh, I've got a new course, uh, uh, online course, foundations for improving cross cultural relational skills, and there are plenty of other resources on the website as well. Cool. Okay, so we'll we'll include that in the show notes for our listeners in case you didn't catch it. It is alphacrane.com.au. Um, but, again, we'll have that in the show notes. So, Craig, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a hoot. Um, been really interesting learning about doing business in culture. Uh, so um, look forward to um, spending more time together. Thank you Thanks very much. So much Thanks, Ram. Thank you very much, Craig, for joining us. Thank you to my co-host, Lindsay Adams. This is Rail Bricker signing off for another edition of the Top 5 Podcast.